0: American stories and that chopping sound? Well, you know what it is, even if you don't. And that's Bugs Bunny. And our next story is an unforgettable tale about an American icon whose voice everyone recognizes. Here's Greg Hengler.
1: If you added up all the hours from your childhood, chances are the voice of Mel Blank made up the majority of dialogue spoken to you. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, Elmer Fudd, Barney Rubble, Tom and Jerry, Woody Woodpecker, and the Tasmanian Devil to name just a few of Blank's voice contributions. This man embodied a sense of innocence and good nature and was so adored and respected that all who knew him had something to say about him. For the sake of time, I won't be introducing all those who contributed to this story. They are fellow animators, inkers, and painters from Warner Brothers, Disney and Hanna-Barbera, animation and film historians, directors, voice artists like Hank Azaria from The Simpsons, Mel's former agents, film critics, his son Noel, and friends such as Kirk Douglas. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the story of Mel Blank, the man of a thousand voices.
2: Allow me to introduce myself Mel Blank. What an amazing guy.
3: What's up, Doc?
0: <laughs> oh, goody!
3: You can't look at the Warner Brothers characters without hearing. It. His sound, his voice.
4: Launch!
3: There's such a delight to the sound of his voice in every character he did. What
4: I say, what I say.
3: Think about it today—that everybody imitates these characters
1: he created. Though.
4: Uh, gosh, what a, a crazy a, a, a screwy duck! That, my little cherub, is strictly a matter of opinion.
5: Mel was so unique at what he did. He- Mel
4: had the range that everyone wishes for.
5: <laughs> Great horny toads! I'm up north. Uh-oh! Gotta burn my boots. They touched Yankee soil. I think it was a shock when I got older and discovered all those voices were one man. His
4: voice was like more powerful than a human body could contain. Open that bridge, Farman! Oh. Open it, I say! <laughs> Close it! Close it, it up again! So it seemed to be coming out of every part of him. Mel Blanc
6: had this phenomenal voice box. Uh, that's the only way I can explain it. He
4: just did all kinds of things that were uh, just amazing. He didn't just do voices, he played characters, and there's a difference. I. Uh, I-
6: was just able to do that, to just totally, like, you know, animate with his voice, to create a complete, three-dimensional character just with his voice alone.
5: I say that's no chicken, son. I'm a chicken, rooster,
2: that is.
6: How can you beat a pair of vocal cords that had an eight-octave range, perfect pitch, great singer, and an incredible actor? There's Mel, and there's like everybody else. There was
7: nobody better than Mel Blanc.
4: Where is You know where is it? A cat. Howdy doody About that age. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Melvin Jerome Blank was born the youngest of two children on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco, to Russian Jewish parents, Frederick and Eva. After leaving New York to seek his fortune prospecting for gold in the Klondike region of the Alaskan Yukon his father eventually settled the family down in Portland, Oregon. As a young boy growing up in the melting pot of the American West, Mel Blanc would forever be affected by the medley of foreign accents and the way voices define personalities.
6: My dad was always interested in voices and in music and in singing and in entertaining. He started to entertain in grammar school.
8: From around about the age of 10, Mel Blanc was... um... I'm very interested in dialects, Yiddish dialects, and Chinese
5: and Japanese dialects, Russian. The school would have an assembly. The grammar school. I would entertain the kids with a dialect story or one of the different a different dialect each time. And uh, the kids loved it, and they got such a big kick out of it. They laughed, and the teachers laughed, and then gave me lousy marks.
1: <laughs> Here's what Mel wrote in his autobiography. That's not all, folks. Except for music class. I loathed school. To be truthful, report card C's and D's had little to no effect on me, but that applause, what an impression it made on a twelve-year-old. Now where'd that
5: boy go? You gotta be a magician to keep a kid's attention more than two minutes nowadays.
1: My talents weren't appreciated by all. In particular, a crotchety old teacher by the name of Washburn. When I broke up a classroom discussion by giving an answer in four different voices, she reprimanded me sternly, too sternly, if you ask me.
5: Ah, shut up.
1: You'll never amount to anything, she said scornfully. You're just like your last name, blank. Her stinging insult so shamed me that when I was 16, I started spelling my surname with a C. B-L-A-N-C, instead of a K. Later, as an adult, I changed it legally. I often wondered if Mrs. Washburn associated Mel Blank with the young student she had ridiculed so many years before.
9: He dropped out of high school in about the ninth grade. I used to say, I got lousy grades, but uh, I I developed some great voices because of the echo in his school, in the hallways. He started leading orchestras. He was an orchestra conductor, and
6: the orchestras moved all around the Oregon area and the Washington area and Northern California area. In between, when he was conducting the music, he would do shtick. He'd do different voices and different comedy routines. Mel was the youngest orchestra leader in the country at that time, at 17.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And by the way, if you're a teacher, if you're an adult, think about how you're talking to kids. More on this remarkable American story here on Our American Stories.
4: The wabbit. What would you want with a wabbit? Can't you see that I'm much sweeter? I'm your little senorator. You are my type of guy. Let me straighten your tie and I shall dance for you.
0: This is Our American Stories and we continue with the story of Mel Blank. Let's pick up where we left off.
6: I think my dad never thought of Hollywood when he was young. He thought of going on the radio when radio was quite new at that time.
1: Well, Mel came from the world of vaudeville and radio a world that's that has long disappeared. Most people don't even know what it was like. In
6: those days radio was a much bigger business than than movies. I mean people forget that that radio was the single most driving force in, you know, American popular culture.
1: And of course radio is ideal for a you know, schooling for someone who was going to do cartoon voices. In 1932 with the blessing of his parents, he jumped into his 1920 Ford Model A convertible and drove south to Los Angeles hoping to find a break. Instead, he met a young woman named Estelle Rosenbaum, a bright and attractive girl with a radiant smile who would become his biggest supporter for the rest of his life. She also shared Mel's deep interest in radio. Mel, 24, and Estelle, 22, married that spring and then proceeded up Route 101 back to Portland to write, produce, and perform their own sketch radio show called cobwebs and nuts to maintain audience interest six hours a week mel had to come up with countless voices and lots of material which was then presented to mel's one woman audience for approval
6: my dad played a hundred different male characters my mother played all the different female characters and uh, they had a great time although they were only paid 15 dollars a week to write it produce it and voice it
1: The show failed to provide a livable wage for the blanks, so Mel seriously considered quitting in order to become an insurance salesman at a whopping $50 a week. Thanks to Estelle's encouragement, he rejected the offer and followed his dreams and talents back to Los Angeles in 1935. Here are Estelle's exact words. Mel, if we're going to be broke, at least let's be broke someplace where it's warm.
5: i had seen some of the Warner Brother voices, or heard some of the voices on the, in the cartoons, and I thought, geez, they're, they're missing out on an awful lot. The voices are pretty bad. Usually, Norman Spencer was there to greet him. I said, I'd like to audition for you and show you what I can do. He says, I'm sorry, we've got all the voices we need. I said, but Mr. Schlesinger said that you were the one. He says, no, I'm sorry. Well, I was as stubborn as he was, and I went back. In two weeks, and I said, Look, won't you just listen to me? He says, I told you we have all the voices we need. So I was still as stubborn as him, and I went to him every two weeks asking him to please listen to me. And he says, I told you a hundred times I've got all the voices we need. So he kept knocking on the doors for two years.
1: Finally, in March of 1937, Mel's perseverance paid off.
10: It was probably the week before Christmas. He came looking for a job, and that day,
5: Treg Brown was sitting there.
6: Treg Brown, brilliant sound effects man for the Warner's cartoons. He happened to take over when this fellow passed away that wouldn't let my dad
5: in the door. And I said, Mr. Brown, I've been trying to get in here to audition, just have him hear me. But the guy kept saying, no, uh, I've got all the voices we need. He says, well, let me hear what you do. So I auditioned for him, and he got a big kick out of it. He said, would you do it again for the directors? I said, gladly.
1: Warner Brothers decided to give Mel a shot in a supporting role for Picador Porky, a new cartoon animated by a 25-year-old lanky kid named Chuck Jones, featuring the studio's latest character, Porky Pig. He said, "Uh, I've
5: got a cartoon coming up with a drunken bull. Do you think you can do the voice of a drunken bull? So I said, yeah, I think I could. He says, how would he talk? he, he were talking like it was a little, a little and we were looking for the sun, looking, looking, for for the sour max. He says, "Great, great." He says, "What are do you doing next Tuesday?" I wasn't doing the damn thing. I said, "I think I can make it."
1: Plan, hurry up, <laughs> Warner Brothers quickly recognized Mel's talent and offered him the prized role of Porky Pig.
5: He says he's a timid little character. I told him well, I want to be real authentic about it, so I went out to a pig farm and walled around with the pigs for a couple of weeks. And I come back and they kick me out so I'd go home and take a bath. When I did I come back, I said if a pig could talk, he'd talk with a grunt, you know. Oi,
4: oi, 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 oi that's we porky talk
5: with a grunt is it all great, great. <laughs> don't, don't
4: worry. It's in the the loaded. We'll watch.
8: In that same cartoon, he introduced a kind of embryonic version of Daffy Duck.
4: <laughs> don't let it worry you, Skipper. I'm just a crazy
5: darn fool duck.
8: <laughs> now, here's a guy suddenly doing the craziest, most energetic voices they've ever had in one cartoon. And I think that that's when they suddenly thought, I think we're going to hang on to this guy.
1: It was Porky Pig and Daffy Duck that put Leon Schlesinger's Warner Brothers Cartoon Company and Mel on the map. But it was another character, a cool, sly, and wise-cracking rabbit with a flair for survival named Bugs Bunny, who would become his most famous and unforgettable creation. Bugs made his cartoon debut on July 27, 1940, in an 8-minute and 15-second short titled... A wild hare.
5: They showed me a picture of this little rabbit, and he's gonna say, hey, what's cooking? I said, instead of him saying, hey, what's cooking, why don't you have him say, Yeah, hey, uh, what's up, Yonk? That's the, the new uh, expression that was uh, being so popular. And I said to Mr. Schlesinger, I said, why don't you name him after the guy who drew the first picture of him? His name was Bugs Hardaway. Why don't you call him Bugs Bunny?
4: What's up, Doc? It's a wabbit down there, and I'm trying to catch him.
5: Well, they told me that Bugs was a tough little stinker, and I thought, what kind of a voice can I give him? The tough character, maybe Brooklyn or the Bronx?
4: So, uh, I put the two of them together, Doc, and that's how Bugs' money came out. Pardon me, but you know, you would just like a wabbit. Uh, come here. Listen, Doc. Now, don't spread this
1: around. But, uh confidentially
4: i am a rabbit
1: the film was nominated for an academy award for best short subject cartoons over the next 20 years mel would give life to nearly the entire cast of looney tunes characters
6: Daffy is not a list. People say Daffy. Listen He is spraying the water out of the <laughs> lips. It's not a list, by the way. I thought I saw a easy,
4: baby, pootie cat. Tweety was a little
5: baby bird,
4: so I gave him a little tiny, baby voice. Ooh, I thought I saw a pootie cat.
5: And Sylvester was a big, sloppy cat, so I gave him a big, sloppy voice.
4: Suffering, <laughs> sash.
5: Speedy Gonzalez was a little, tiny mouse. Gracias. And he had to talk fast, because
4: his name was Speedy. So I gave him a very fast little voice, like this: said, uh, my name is Speedy Gonzales. I said, this is where we can give you the mask, I think. See, he talks so fast, you can understand what he says, I think.
5: Just to think, radiant
4: flower, you do not have to come with me to the gas bar.
2: We are already
5: here. He chased the pussycat and catched them and kissed them. <coughs> <coughs> I gave him more or less of a French voice, like so, a voiler. And uh, I said only French words wrong, you know. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here. Yosemite Sam, they showed me he was a little cowboy, and he was only two feet tall with long red hair, and had to be recognized, so I had to give him a a recognizable voice. So I gave a real loud voice, like so. My name's Yosemite Sam. (laughs) This is one that almost gets me every time I use it.
1: Other studios called upon Mel for his one-of-a-kind talent. MGM and Walt Disney were quick to offer roles. But perhaps his most famous non-Warner Brothers voice was Woody Woodpecker, which he created in 1940. And I
5: remembered in school that I had a crazy laugh. I used to do it in in the school, in the high school, and run down to the end of the hall to hear the echo. It would just echo all the way around. Never knowing that this would turn out to be the voice of Woody Woodpecker,
4: which
5: is a <laughs> <laughs> just added that little pecking at the end.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And he was so lucky. I mean he had a wife, Estelle, who said, If we're going to be broke, let's at least be broke someplace where we're gonna be warm. What a lucky guy. And also, bumping into a man named Chuck Jones is pretty good luck, too. More on the life of Mel Blank, his remarkable story, here on Our American Stories.
4: Duck hunting's all the rage and they won't let me be. And I'm so full of bullets, I'm lit up like a Christmas tree
0: and you just can't help but smile and we return to the story of mel blank and we're about to pick up where we just left off
1: but of all the characters mel created bugs remain the fan favorite and it's easy to see why arriving on the screen shortly before the bombing of pearl harbor Bugs became a symbol of American strength in the face of the enemy. The quintessential Yank.
4: The tall man with the high hat will be coming down your way. Get your savings out when you hear him shout. And he bonds today. Come on and get him, folks. Come on, skip right up and get him.
8: Because of what was happening in Europe and, and and the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, audiences just found his sassy control of the situation just so heroic. Coolness in the face of danger.
4: Damn. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Listen, stranger, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. It ain't.
1: The Blanks gave birth to their only child on October 19th, 1938, a son named Noel. This stretched the Blank household budget to the breaking point. At his wife's urging, Mel decided to ask for a salary increase from the tight-fisted, savvy head of Warner Brothers Cartoons, Leon Schlesinger.
4: Hello, Porky. Come on in. Uh, hello, Mr. Slash Hello, Leon.
7: Well, Porky, what's on your mind?
4: What can I do for
1: you? What Schlesinger offered Mel was unprecedented for any voice actor to date. Soul screen credit on every cartoon produced by the studio. <Whitney and> <theories> <laughs>
6: When his voice characterization by Mel Blanc went up on screen in the early 40s, it's the same time that the radio people started utilizing his name in the credits. Jack Benny started to put him into the credits. Abbott and Costello, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Dagwood and Blondie, Amos and Andy. He was on every show. Jack Carson, Joe Penner. And they started to use his name at the end of the credits. Also on tonight's show were so-and-so, so-and-so, and and Mel Blanc.
1: Mel was modest about his fame, and he enjoyed his private life. He made friends with everyone he worked with, but it was his friendship with Jack Benny that Mel cherished most.
6: Wednesday night used to be ping-pong night. So ping-pong night used to get all the people that were on the radio show, uh, Lucille Ball and George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Jack Benny and Jack Carson, they'd all come out and play ping-pong. My dad would make them soda fountain drinks, and then they'd go home.
1: Mel is thought of as just a voice man, but he was so much more.
6: His timing was outstanding.
11: You know, you can, be, you can be a comic, and if you can't, if you don't have the timing down, you have the
4: best
10: material in the world, it's meaningless.
4: Put fingers in Clumsy, the world's foremost jugglers, Fearless creep and his sensational high-diving act. Fearless creep, That's my boy! Weary! <laughs> 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 Step aside, son, you bother me. It's the acting. People say, oh, Mel Blank, the man of a thousand voices, greatest voice man that ever lived. One of the best actors to ever come out of Hollywood. People don't take the voice person as seriously as they would like the, the Olivier's or Dustin Hoffman, De Niro, but you know, to say, you know, Olivier De Niro, blank. It sounds weird because of what genre he worked in, but no, he was a brilliant actor. There! Now
7: I
5: won't be able to get the bird!
4: Oh, Mr. Cat, don't you like me anymore?
5: I, I think... I think... I, I think you're... I think you're... DELICIOUS!
3: i'll tell you what i think mel Blanc's geni- most genius achievement was and only if you're a voice actor do you realize how incredible this is when bugs and daffy are fighting over whether it's rabbit season or duck season and daffy duck comes out dressed up as bugs bunny doing a bugs bunny imitation then bugs bunny comes out dressed as daffy doing a daffy impression yeah. what's up doc
4: having any luck on those ducks it's duck season you know a darn minute! Where do you get that duck season
3: stuff? You know how hard that is to do—to take your own character, have it imitate another one of your own characters. It's almost impossible. Because if you try to like combine two voices that you're doing, you kind of just land in the middle. Like if I try to do Apu imitating Mo, it'll sound just like Mo imitating Apu. There's no—we tried it one day at the Simpsons. We were talking about how We were marveling at Mel Blanc's ability to do this. And we all tried to do one of our characters imitating another one and have them sound different and we couldn't do it.
4: You know what to do with that gun,
3: Doc. I'd say, you know, Dad, you're
6: an incredible actor. I said, here's a picture signed by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello says to the greatest actor I know, Mel Blanc. I said, Jack Benny used to call you a great actor. Did you know you were a great actor? He says, no, no, I'm not, real. I'm a voice person. But he didn't realize that was acting. He never took an acting lesson.
1: In all of his cartoons, when Mel wasn't performing all the voices, his chemistry with his fellow actors was apparent. None more so than with Arthur Q. Bryan, the voice behind Bugs' adversary, Elmer Fudd. Here's Bryan and Blank rehearsing in the studio for the six-minute and 49-second cartoon classic released in theaters on July 6, 1957, What's Opera Doc? The bit we just heard bumping in after the commercial break. The short is informally referred to as Kill the Wabbit, after the line sung by Fudd to the tune of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries.
4: I will do it with my spear and magic helmet. Your spear and magic helmet? Spear and magic helmet. Magic helmet. Helmet. Magic helmet. Magic, magic. yes. <clears throat> it's
7: a shame.
5: That
1: was going well. Was I don't think it. I'm right yet on I'm going to kill the rabbit, am I?
5: That's a point. That's fine.
1: Okay, kill it. In 1994, 1,000 members of the animation industry ranked What's Opera Doc number one on the list of 50 greatest cartoons of all time. Mel and Arthur acted out the combative relationship between Bugs and the tiptoeing, shotgun-wielding Elmer in over 30 cartoons over the span of 20 years until Arthur's passing at the age of 60 in 1959.
4: (laughs) Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting weapons.
1: <laughs> the classic voice of Elmer oh, Fudd boy. needed a replacement.
5: Friz Freeling, one of the directors, said to me, uh, Mel, will you do a couple of lines for uh, for Elmer Fudd? He says, I've tried others and they can't come close. He said, just can you do a couple of lines? I said, oh, I don't why, but I don't know if I could do it or not. <laughs> he says, that's it. So I also became Elmer Fudd.
1: Whereas audiences felt sorry for the witless Elmer Fudd, the pint-sized, pea-brained, ornery ombre named Yosemite Sam evoked no sympathy at all. He was conceived as a more challenging adversary for Bugs Bunny.
4: That's who I am! Well, come here, Shorty. Come here. Hey, don't say I told you, but uh, there's a guy in the next car that says he's the meanest, toughest, etc., etc., and he's got a seven shooter to prove it. How's about that? There is. Whoa! Blast the vomit wide open. Yosemite Sam. It's Yosemite Sam. Yosemite, Sam. Yosemite Yeah, you Yosemite, Yosemite Sam. Sam, the roughest, oh, toughest, he-man, toughest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande. <laughs>
5: I'm the fastest gun north, south,
4: east, and west of the Pecos. I'm the. Yeah, shut up! Did I hear someone say shut up? Yep.
2: I'm giving you
4: one second
2: to draw a gun.
5: How's that, Chunky?
2: Say, that's a right
5: smart picture you got there, partner. You know, I'm fair to middling with a pencil myself. Look at here. (laughs) Quit looking over my shoulder. It bothers me.
1: By the late 1950s, Mel was on top of the world.
0: And when we come back, the final installment of this hour long celebration of the life of Mel Blank, his story continues here on Our American Stories. What have I done? I've killed a rabbit. Poor
5: little Bonnie. Forward
4: oh, a while <laughs> How do? Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me shave your crop. Daintily, daintily. Hey, you. Don't look so perplexed. Why must you be vexed? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. Yeah so next. <laughs> How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of lather, lots of soap, please hold still, don't be a dope. Now we're ready for the scraping, there's no use to try escaping. Yelling,
5: screaming, and rave. it's no use, you need a shave. Ooh, ouch, ouch, ooh, ouch,
4: ooh, ouch! And you're nice and clean. Although your face looks like it might have gone through a machine.
0: And this is Our American Stories, the last part of this terrific story about the one, the only, Mel Blanc.
1: Although he never personally won an Academy Award, his voice earned Warner Brothers five Oscars. Then, on the night of January 24th, 1961, this happened.
6: My mom called me. I was with friends. She says, Dad didn't show up the recording session. She says, wait a minute. The other phone is ringing. We had two lines. It was UCLA hospital saying that he had been involved in a head-on collision on Dead Man's Curve right above UCLA, and they had taken him to UCLA after they had to to use a cutting torch to get him out of the Aston Martin. It happened that a kid driving a, a 98 Oldsmobile, a great big car, ran into a small Aston Martin sports car, and it just folded up. They didn't expect him to live for the first 12, 13 days.
5: I went to see him and it was really, um, I, I was shocked because he was wired up with all kinds of gadgets to keep him together. Noel told me that almost every bone in his body was broken.
6: He was unconscious for a long time. Finally, a doctor got an idea because my dad had a television in his room and it was playing Bugs Bunny cartoons. So the doctor went over to the bed and clapped his hands and said, Bugs, can you hear me? Bugs, can you hear me? My dad goes,
4: what's up, doc?"
6: The first words that he uttered were of Bugs. Then he says, Porky, can you hear me? And he would answer me, I can hear you. So he brought him around doing the character's voices before my dad was fully awake as as himself.
1: Blank continued working for Warner Brothers, but also began providing voices for television cartoons produced by Hanna-Barbera. His most famous role during this time was Barney Rubble from The Flintstones.
5: Oh, boy, wait till Fred sees my new bowling ball. It'll bring my score up to at least 100.
8: And, of course, he was Mr. Spacely in The Jetsons.
5: Send up Jetson, Miss Gamma. Yes, sir. Ready, Mr.
4: Jetson? Right. Well, good luck. Fire!
8: But I don't think any of the characters he did in the later years of his life uh, had the staying power of anywhere near the staying power of the um, immortal Looney Tune characters. (laughs)
4: Everywhere you go, everybody knows Bugs Bunnies, They don't know Mel Blanc, but they know Bugs Bunny, and everybody knows that.
12: I cannot tell you the quantity of fan mail he received, and something really, really phenomenal about him. That man answered every piece of correspondence, personally. He would call people. He'd get a letter, oh, it's my daughter's birthday. She's turning 12. Her favorite character is Tweety Bird. It would be so terrific, sir. You know, if you ever have time, could you call my daughter? And Mel would call these people from all over the world, and literally wish them happy birthday or happy anniversary or whatever the 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 celebration was.
6: When he lived in Playa Del Rey or Pacific Palisades, kids would come over every day and say, "Mel, can we have your autograph? Do some voices?" And we'd have kids at the door. I mean, literally every day. Halloween, we'd have 1,500 to 2,000 kids, and he'd give out signed little autographs and candy. The kids would
12: always go to Mel and Estelle's house, because they never knew who was going to answer the door. You know, Bugs, or Porky, or Peppy, or Daffy, or Wiley, or Roadrunner, you never know. So it was it was great to watch that. It was really, really wonderful. Here's
1: legend of Hollywood's golden age, Kirk Douglas.
12: The longer
6: I'm in this business, the more I feel that we we really are very lucky people. Because in a strange way we attain immortality. And if you judge immortality by the pleasure that you've given to others, I would certainly say that Mel Blanc is one of the greatest of the immortals.
12: devoted a lot of time and burn units um, for alien children. And I think he really had a great effect in doing so. Even if it made him feel better for just a minute, he did. We had to try to get him to leave, first of all. I mean, he would spend all day doing it. I mean, there would be times I would say, you know, Mel, we've got to go, it's getting dark, you know, we've got to get back on the road. And when there were children and children, you know, in that situation, he, um, you couldn't get him to walk away.
5: If I saw a person smile, that to me was payment in itself. And and, uh, uh, if I could make them laugh when they had been very sad, it it was great payment to me. Thanks, Jennifer, for helping us tell the story.
4: Thank you,
1: bud. Oh. On May 30th, 1988, Mel Blank turned 80. Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered that year, and Blank contributed many voices to the summer blockbuster. A huge party was thrown by Warner Brothers on its Burbank lot. And again, Mel was asked the same question he had been asked every birthday since he turned 65. Mel, when are you going to retire? Mel's answer? The day I drop. That's when, who'd want to quit making people laugh? On July 1989, when he agreed to star in a new commercial for Oldsmobile, neither he nor his son Noel would know that this would be his final performance. Here's Noel and Mel bantering inside the cutlass Sierra in between takes. You'll hear Noel doing his father's character's voices too. Growing up, Mel trained Noel on the voices, so that when the time came, he could take over for his father.
6: Is that any, is that any good? We are the new generation of olds. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, pretty good. We're the
4: new generation of olds.
6: The director there is out pulling his hair, but we're going to do this commercial anyhow. What hair? <laughs> oh, <he's got> it. <laughs> it's that one. It's not the art director. <laughs> well, how would Yosemite Sam say this? We are the new generation of olds. Look in the, look at the dealer right there and talk to him. We are the new generation of old. Now you heard that, you better believe it. We are, and we're going to try to do this commercial, but it's tough. Anyway, we got this director. Tough, he says.
5: <laughs> Very simple. We've only been on in about 27 hours.
6: We had shot the Oldsmobile commercial all day. It's not your father's Oldsmobile. And uh, I said, Dad, uh, you're coughing a little bit. Why don't you go to the doctor and get your lungs cleared out? The doctor called me and said, yeah, Mel's over here. And the doctor says, well, I can keep him in the hospital overnight or just give him a, a, some, an inhaler to clou- get the cough out of it. My dad said, no, let's stay in the hospital overnight. It was a mistake, of course. He fell out of bed. They forgot to put the bed rails up. He broke his femur, got fed Mboli into the brain and was basically gone in 48 hours. He was still at the height of his career he could still do all the voices that he could before and he was still really terrific
1: mel blank lays to rest in the hollywood forever cemetery under a star of david the epitaph on blank's tombstone reads that's all folks mel blank has a star on the hollywood walk of fame at 6385 hollywood boulevard he is the only person to have himself and two of his characters on the Walk of Fame, with both Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker receiving a star. The only others to have received this honor are Walt Disney as both himself and Mickey Mouse, Jim Henson as both himself and Kermit the Frog, and Mike Myers as both himself and Shrek. Mel Blanc is one of the pillars of entertainment, an actor whose talents can still be marveled at today.
6: My dad's legacy is laughter. He wanted to make people feel good and laugh out loud. The thing I miss most about my dad is my dad and his personality being the great father, listening to me, never doubting me, asking good questions, being great to my mom. The fact that he was such a a marvelous human being, not only to the world, but to his family. That's what I remember most. I can turn his voice on any time and see one of the cartoons. So I can really bring him back to life at any time I want to. I hear his voice every day.
1: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And...
4: Ever the, ever the, ever the, 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 tall folks. Suppose I was a smelly skunk, I wouldn't have a friend. I'd be alone, excepting for a cent I couldn't spend. Suppose I was a gator in the swamps, where time would drag until the day when I'd be made into a traveling bag. So I'm glad to be the way I am. Who cares if I look funny? No matter. What the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. Suppose I was a turkey, then I'd end up on a tray in the middle of the table on the next Thanksgiving day. Suppose I was a bullfrog croaking out a note. I dread the time when I would be a frog in someone's throat. So I'm glad be the way I am, who cares if I look funny, no matter what the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. Yeah, that's all, folks. That's all.
0: This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite not-so-regular segments, Shower Thoughts. Here's Jesse. Shower Thoughts. Oh,
13: oh. turn the fan on. A bachelor party is a lot more appropriate after a divorce than before a wedding. When you light a lighter... It gets lighter, until it's too light to light.
10: Hmm.
13: You know, beef jerky is basically just a meat raisin. For most of human history, vehicles had automatic collision avoidance and could even take you home when you were sleeping or drunk. And then we got rid of the horse. You know, George Washington's brother was actually the uncle of our country. Eyelids are just miniature lips. They even have little mustaches. Eyelips. (laughs) The salad dressing industry is 100% dedicated to covering up the flavor of salad. If you're feeling bad about yourself, just think that the world is full of losers. And your addition won't do any harm. By only killing bugs that come into the open in your house, humans are effectively creating generations of bugs that are increasingly better at hiding. Whoever discovered milk must have had some explaining to do. Synonym and homonym are antonyms. Synonym and antonym are antonyms. But antonym and homonym are not synonyms.
1: Shower Thoughts.
0: And from the sublime to one of our favorite regular segments that combine our love of music with our love of history, This Week in Music History. 1958, 6.35 a.m. Elvis Presley reports
13: to the Memphis Draft Board. From there, he and 12 other recruits were taken by bus to Kennedy Veterans Memorial Hospital. Where the singer was assigned an army serial number, five three three one zero seven six one.
5: 10761 Give us a room with a view of the beautiful
13: ride. Despite being offered the chance to enlist in special services to entertain the troops and live in priority housing, Presley decides to serve as a regular soldier. This earned him the respect of many of his fellow soldiers and people back home who had previously viewed him in a negative
4: light. From my GI head to the
1: heels of my GI shoes.
2: And if I don't go stateside soon, I'm going to blow my fuse. In 1972,
13: Canadian songwriter Neil Young starts a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Heart of Gold. Released from the 1972 album Harvest, it's Young's only US number 1 single. Song features backup vocals by James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. All right. And in 1989, this week in music history, a radio station in California arranged to have all of its Cat Stevens records destroyed by having a steamroller run over them in the parking lot. It's all done in protest of the singer's support of Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against author Salman Rushdie over his book, The Satanic Verses. And in 1973, during a Lou Reed show in Buffalo, New York, a fan jumped on the stage and bit Lou Reed on the butt.
12: Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked her way across the USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way. Shaved her legs and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side.
13: And in 2017, Chuck Berry died at age 90. The American guitarist, singer, songwriter was one of the pioneers of rock and roll music with songs like "Maybelline," "Roll Over Beethoven," and "Johnny B. Good." He refined and developed rhythm and blues into the major elements that make rock and roll what it is today. Born this week in music history, 1941 American singer-songwriter Wilson Pickett, who recorded over 50 songs which made the U.S. R&B charts.
0: Mustang Sally. <laughs> you slow Mustang
13: Among his best-known hits are In the Midnight Hour, which he co-wrote, Land of a Thousand down. Dances and Mustang Sally. Pickett died of a heart attack in January of 06 at age 64. Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 started a four week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart. No the track, which was the group's only U.S. chart topper, was a number one in the U.K., Germany, Australia, Italy, and many other countries around the world. Pink Floyd received a Grammy nomination for Best Performance by a Rock Duo or Group for the song, but lost to Bob Seegers Against the Wind.
8: Teach
13: Be sure to hear the master recordings and the story of this song at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. And that's This Week in Music History. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Epp. All in all,
2: it's just a brick in the
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about everything here on this show. And that's family, love, faith, music, movies, food. And yes, we talk a lot about work and a lot about education, because that's a big part of our lives. And we hear so often from young people and parents alike about this problem called education. And does everyone need to go to college? And in this 21st century, there are so many good jobs chasing not nearly enough qualified applicants and what to do about it, what to do about it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing what we do. Sometimes we're watching stuff on TV, so you don't have to. And there was a woman, Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM, and she was talking at this governor's conference, and all the governors of the country are there, and they're there to talk about this problem. Their schools, all the money we're spending as taxpayers in our respective states and as a federal government, and what are we doing to solve this problem, this skills problem in this country, and should every kid go to college? By the way, Ginny Rometty is the CEO of IBM, but no one would have ever thought this woman was going to be such a thing because, well, at the age of 15, her father, well, he just got out of Dodge and left her mom to raise four kids. Without the help of another provider. But Jenny went to Northwestern, rose up IBM, and became again this CEO. And here she is defining the problem to this audience again of governors of all 50 states.
10: This is not a world where everybody has to be a data scientist. If we paint a vision that the only people with good jobs are everyone with a four year college degree or a phd i think that cre- that is not what this world can do it is going to create a division that is even larger in this country between the haves and the have-nots you cannot there must be good paying jobs and i think it's quite possible we played around with a term called new collar which said we can see it it's not a four year degree think of it as with less than a four year degree maybe you want to call it a six year high school You can get a very good, productive job in the data economy in many, many different fields. So we set out on this. It's now been six years that we started down this path. Coined it new collar, so not blue collar, not white collar. Tried to have no stereotype that would be a negative stereotype with this. But the problem
0: for students and companies alike is that very few schools or other institutions are preparing young people for these new collar jobs. So IBM decided to take action with their own Pathways in Technology program to reinvent education. It is a public-private partnership that spans grades
10: nine to 14, combining high school, college, and a career. We will now be up to 120. Texas is going to do another 20, seven states. Uh, As as the full pipeline of every grade is full, we'll be at more than 60,000 kids. And the idea is 120 schools, a very simple formula. And I already know it's working because I've hired a bunch of them already. They're coming out the other end. I've been at it now long enough, so i got proof. Um, The idea is simple. Take a four-year high school with a joint community college. You offer the kids the chance to get their high school degree and their associate degree at the same time. We as industry, public-private partnership, offer mentorship electronic mentorship for the kids, and a chance at a job. Now, the curriculum, it is not like a trade school. These kids are getting a good, broad education. But it is more practical education that can be hired. And so the kids now are graduating and making double the median income. Uh, whether it's not just cybersecurity jobs, it's not just direct IT jobs, it's digital designers. And we've got, oh boy, now it's up to 400 other companies across the country helping us with taking on and giving the kids the mentorships and the internships. They even get internships during, paid internships no less, uh, during this. And so to me, that's one way for the youth. I think it's a public-private partnership. I need the employees. Everybody I know needs the employees. I mean, the gap of jobs in this country is still millions. I just look at cybersecurity, it's going to be millions again to go forward. And even with now the Jobs Act, we can bring in back all the jobs. We don't have to train people. So to me, this is a really big deal. And when you look at the um, graduation rates out of community college, we're 400 times better than the average community college graduation rate. 85% of the kids are either graduating with their associate degree or going on to college. We started with the most underserved kids. 70% qualify for free lunch or lunch assistance if if that's maybe kind of a a guide for underserved. And they're coming out now. So it's really something that I am so, uh, you can tell I hope, so passionate about. That And I do believe it's a responsibility. I mean, we create this. It's our responsibility to work public-private partnership. And and there is no one better to sponsor it. There is no one who else can other than a governor.
0: And by the way, that's the sound of big, bad business, folks. Reaching out, speaking out, putting their capital on the line and saying, please help us, educators, families, America. We want to fill these jobs. And we're here to help with the training with, as she said before, electronic mentorship. We can pipe in a lot of learning from people who are on the job who are willing to give some of their time to teach. It's like apprenticeship via the Internet. We know this is possible, right? Well, I never saw a set of governors so excited to talk at one of these governors' conferences because this was real-life solutions without a burden on the taxpayers, folks. Here's Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado
2: when one of the IBM executives came and pitched me on P-TECH, which was in 2012, in Pathways of Technologies, we call it P-TECH. It's P-TECH, yeah. Um, but anyway, I love that IBM gave this guy leeway on IBM time to go out and go out to other states. First they did in New York and then showed it could work and then said, all right, here's, we'll, we'll set up for you guys, are going to have to engage it. So we have it in three three school districts now, and the thing that's amazing, so it's in one of our school districts, is in St. Frane Valley School Districts, and. Uh, they're up there they're in their second year there they're our third school district, but they have a little over a hundred kids. seventy percent come from low impact, low income Hispanic households uh, almost everyone will be the first generation first in their generation to go to college. so that ability to provide technology pathways to everybody is really astounding. I just want to make sure that you got recognized for uh, for that
10: leadership. Well, thank you for your leadership on it too so seriously. 100 kids'
0: lives changed forever. And again, 70% of those kids in that one school district in Colorado, 70% low-income households. Next up, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland.
7: We started this in Baltimore City. We found out what you were doing from New York, and uh, we said we've got to get this in our state. And we took on, we started with two schools Two of the most challenged schools in Baltimore City and teamed up with Baltimore City Community College. I was just there a couple of days ago visiting with the teachers and the, with the kids and the students and I can tell you we're trying to expand this all over the state. It, number one, we, you know, we're the cyber capital of America. We house NSA and NIST and the Cyber Center of Excellence. We have 17 universities that are cyber uh, related, 12,000 IT companies. Uh, and so we have a huge need for people with technical skills and we're doing that all over at every level. That's not just what this is about, getting kids into uh, learning technology. To see the faces of these kids who are literally, their parents are crying because of the opportunity. They're kids that might not have ever had any opportunity or any hope for a better future that have mentors and paid summer internships. And they're learning and they're excited and they see a future because of this. And they're first in line for jobs at IBM or one of the other companies that sponsor. It's just an incredible program. So I know six of my colleagues are already doing it. Um, I just want to thank IBM for the innovation and encourage all of you to uh, take a serious look. It's a wonderful program.
10: It's a, it's a funny thing, you know, the, uh, all of the uh, education, because part of what we also do, the kids learn, you know, how do you eat a business meal? What's the appropriate way to dress? How do you go to, I mean, there are many things you teach beyond just the content, as you saw, right? But boy, to those, I've never met a parent that didn't want a better life for their child, right? And never, no it doesn't matter.
0: Yep, so true. And finally, Jenny suggested that we seriously consider how schooling fits into our lives, Is it really something that we can do in one big chunk?
10: I think you need to rethink the education model. We are now going to be in a lifelong learning model. That is a different world because this won't be the last time. And so where we used to think you could finish your grade 12, maybe go on through university, you're done and the rest takes care of itself. I don't know. To me, I've given a lot of thought about does this mean a new new sort of continuous training model that gets put in does education really change in every state somebody's going to have to start to tackle that it's not that i'm looking for incentives that's i don't need them in a, in a company of our size but the small medium businesses this constant retraining that's going to go on i think is going to be a fact of life we're going to focus on
0: and it is and you know you're thinking about hundred thousand dollars between the ages of 18 and 22 Well, maybe that needs to go into an education savings account for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life. What was really beautiful about this event, folks, is you were hearing from Republican governors, Democrat governors. They weren't fighting. They weren't screaming. They weren't yelling at each other. By the way, that's why it's not on the news. But it's important to the families listening, and that's why we bring it to you. Good news out there. Pathways in technology. If it's not in your school district, ask your superintendent why and push and push. There's companies out there waiting to help. Jenny Rametti's story. Let's face it, the American worker's story in the 21st century, and all of our family's story here on our American stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And boy, we've done some good ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and check them out. Mario Andretti, that's my favorite. I mean, just to get to talk to that man, find out his life story, what happened to his family in Italy, what happened to the land and the vineyard his father had owned and how it was stolen by Tito in Yugoslavia. They lived in an essential refugee camp in northern Italy for seven years, came to America with nothing. And Andretti credits that move with him being a champion racer. He said he never had enough wealth in Italy to ever be a race car driver. But in America, a meritocracy, the owners of race car teams actually wanted the best drivers. So this poor kid from Nazareth, Pennsylvania, becomes the greatest auto racing champion of all time. In fact, the industry nominated him as what, Alex? The, the greatest driver of the 20th century? Yep. Not bad for a kid who came here with nothing. And those are the stories we tell. Also, Shahid Khan, go on the website, learn about him. He came from Pakistan with no money, and his first job was a dollar and twenty an hour job as a dishwasher as he put himself through the University of Illinois. And he told us that what really struck him was that when he got that first paycheck at the end of the week, he was in the top 1% of all earners from his home country in Pakistan simply washing dishes. So as he said to us, there had to be a pony somewhere. He knew there was hope. And that's what so many immigrants come here with when they come to this country. And it's a context. They know the past. They also know the countries from which they come. And they know real adversity. And today we tell you a story about Tony Saliba, a finance industry leader profiled in Market Wizards, the founder of Liquid Point, which executes 32% of all options trading in the entire country, and is the author of the authoritative book on options called Managing Expectations. Tony's story in finance is fascinating, but today we focus on how he got there. What character traits did he develop? How did he develop them? Something that all of us, whether we know a lot about the financial industry or nothing at all, can learn from. Here's Alex's conversation with Tony Saliba.
9: Tell us about your parents and their impact on your life, and if any moments in particular to stand out or they really taught you some lesson. It's a great question, Alex.
11: So I'm oldest of seven. And, you know, my parents were uh, belt and wooden spoon people, you know, and you probably know what that means, <laughs> right? So, so, you're a millennial, Not so... Not a phrase yeah. used too often. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, my mother, uh, rest her soul, uh, passed about five years ago, and, um, uh, she was a big driving force, big influence oh, in my life, in that she pushed me a lot. Now... I have to say that I probably, you know, being one of seven and couldn't wait to get out of the house, I probably didn't tell her that enough, Uh, you know. Of course, she passed away. My dad, who is still with us and doing great, he worked all the time. I mean, he was a carpenter. He'd come home and get out of his dry coveralls and get into his greasy. Overalls and go to the gas station, pure oil gas station, and pump gas every night. And on the weekends, change oil, pump gas, and the four oldest boys would go. Mom would bring us there right after lunch on Sunday, and we'd spend four hours in on the bay getting a few minutes with our dad while he worked. Wow. Just four little greasy... Italian boys sitting there watching Dad, you know, get oil all over him and, you know, fix cars and work basically 24-7. Well, not 24-7, but basically 16 hours a day for seven days a week.
9: So you had so little time with him that you went to his work to be with him.
11: Right. And the moments, the times that we played ball together, my dad was a great baseball player grew up in Detroit and played American Legion ball, you know, and uh, uh, he would play with us on occasion. It was real memorable because he was a, he was like the best dad that played with us, but he just was always busy and, you know, always working, so he wasn't there to play with us.
9: Tony also noted how hard his mom worked, too. Soon after her youngest son, Paul, was born, she went right to work as a waitress to earn money for their family of nine and it was the older siblings who took care of Paul. Here's Tony on the impact of seeing all of this.
11: So my parents had obviously huge influence on me just with the embedded work ethic. I mean, Alex, I when I graduated from college, I had already worked 27, 26 jobs. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a, uh, my, my mom at, at, at the age of uh, seven, would drive me around uh, in the station wagon, and I would run and put the little advertisers with the green rubber bands on the doors of everybody's house in, like, three or four uh, contiguous neighborhoods, and and then I delivered paper, one of my best...
9: How did that work with your mom driving you around and she had the kids
11: in the car with you know the younger kids so i was seven did she split
9: the money with you or were you helping the family out and you weren't getting any pay how did that? well so i remember we got
11: paid we got paid based on the uh number that we we did and and it came it came in like a, a bag of rubber bands and i think there were 50 rubber bands in a bag and we got like a dollar, so we got like two cents for everyone we put on a doorknob, and we probably did, you know, maybe five hundred of those in a two-night period or something like that. And so, what is, you know, what is it like ten dollars? Ten dollars. And and um, my mom put whatever money I made in a savings account. Okay. So it wasn't about the money as much as it was about teaching me how to work and the value of work and the value of commerce. You're exchanging your time and your labor for some remuneration
9: one thing to make your kids work is my dad did you know making me cut grass in you know fifth or sixth grade and then caddy after that but it's a whole other thing to actually do it with your kid and then spend your own time yes tony's mom was something else and her son went on to work without her
11: i worked in pharmacy i worked in the grocery store i um, photographed weddings and sorority parties and fraternity parties in college i delivered pizzas i bartended i I had a lot of different jobs. I mean I, I obviously cut grass. I paved um driveways. Wow. I At how old? Um I did it in college, I think my freshman summer might have been my senior summer and my freshman summer I caddied and then you know nobody you know, nobody wanted to have their driveways paved unless it was dry, okay, so you know, when it rained I would go and solicit for the paving and then as soon as it would dry I would, you know, make a loop and come in.
9: A loop is catty lingo for catting a full 18 holes of golf, a so-called loop around the golf course.
11: You know, sometimes I'd make two loops and come in when the sun was going down and pave the thing and, you know, go out and buy a bucket of the tar or the, the sealant and um, or sealer and uh, mark up, you know, what that costs some time for my labor, you know, so I had my equipment and
9: made a business of it. I thought you were going to say you worked for some company. You fi- You figured it out. How did, did, you, how did you learn how to I, I actually
11: hired a couple guys, some friends of mine, to come along and do it with me eventually. And uh, there was uh, uh, three of us. And I can't say I was Tom Sawyer, you know, uh, that uh, let them do the work and I got paid. I worked with them, but I did get a cut. You know, they got paid and I got margin on, on what they did.
9: But well, how'd you learn how to do it? I guess I just figured it
11: out.
0: And there you have it, folks. And when we come back... More with Tony Saliba, and we keep hearing this recurrently from some of the most successful men and women in this country, starting with nothing, parents who taught him a work ethic, more old school than new, but a mixture of the two. When we come back, more with Tony Saliba, one of the titans in the business he's in, which has to do with options and trading. But this cuts across all industries. More, our American stories, American Dreamers. This is our American Stories, and we're back with our American Dreamers series, and Alex's interview with trader and entrepreneur Tony Saliba. And for Tony, one of the very first jobs he had as a kid, caddying played a surprisingly big role in him becoming a trader. Here he is sharing with Alex what caddying meant to him.
11: You know, I caddied for some really bright men, and as I told you, my dad worked so much that I I hate to say it, those men became my father figures. And... Most of them have passed on, some far too early. Some are still with us. In fact, one of the guys I caddied for was my first partner when I traded. And he didn't know anything about trading, but he did know about business. And when I was having a hard time, I steeled myself to turn myself around I started getting my footing back, and this gentleman who I caddied for, who was my partner, whose name was Julian, called me up, and you know, it was big, tall, gruff guy. Yeah. Well, see so he turned a, a count around, and I never wanted to talk to him because I started out poorly, and he he gave me a hard time.
9: Started out poorly? Well, that's an understatement. Julian provided him fifty thousand dollars, and Tony lost thirty-five thousand of it in just six weeks.
11: And then when I, when I turned things around, I said, I see you turn the account around. And I said, I, I did. And he said, uh, well, how'd you do it? And I told him, and he said, well, any good banker knows that you know once you find a winning strategy, you increase just the size of your loans. And I'm like, huh? And he said, you're trading one lots. It works. Go up to two lots.
9: And you got a nickname, Mr. One Lot. Yeah, I did.
11: Yeah, I did because of, you know, because of the way I traded. And so this gentleman, Julian, I made him a lot of money and I wanted to go on my own we were 50/50 partners. And now the capital that he had started me with didn't really mean anything. I didn't need it. We I'd made 20 times that already in the account. And uh, we moved from 50 50 to two thirds, one third. And then, you know, I just said, Julian, you know, I really, I really want to get out of the, uh, the contract, uh, the, our arrangement. And he was nice enough said, okay, well, just, you know, watch my positions for me. He lived in f- Florida. And he goes, you were the best thing that's ever happened to me besides my, my family. He said, you know, you were like star boxer, champion boxer, you know, that I backed or something. He just said, you know, you you were the best thing that ever happened to me. And we stayed in touch over the years, very lightly, you know, not every year do we talk. And then um, in like twenty twelve he calls me and he says, Tony Saliba, Julian good. I said, Julian goes Next month's my 93rd birthday, and I could think of nothing better than to see Tony Saliba for my 93rd birthday. I am going to make it to 100, you know, but I just want to start seeing you on my birthdays. you want to come down here and see me? And I said, uh, Julian, yes, I I will come down. So we go down there, and... We are going to meet on... You know, I got there Friday night. We are going to meet on Saturday, like, for brunch. And he calls me, and he says, I got to wave this off. I got to wave this off. Arlene isn't feeling well. Arlene and Arlene, his wife, they've been married for, you know, like, 70 years or something. Uh, so I, you know, can't, can't have you come today. Maybe tomorrow. It's okay. Well, we're, you know, we're, le- we're here all day Sunday, too. And I wanted to see him both days. So I said, okay. No good. Go back without seeing him, Alex, and Arlene passed away within a week or two of that. Mm. And and Julian didn't make it three months after that. So I never got to see him again. And, uh, you know, he was one of the guys I caddied for, back to the point about instilling values these guys that I caddied for, they, they played for big money. They taught us kids, you know, the meaning of a dollar and how to have fun and to not overbet. You know, they they, they played on every stroke, basically. But they had great camaraderie and really good work ethic. And I think beyond all things, and this is what's so... Huge in in today's society, and that is they showed me either indirectly and in the case of one guy, George Abrams, who was really my father figure, alternate father figure, and he passed away the one he's the one that passed away in his like forties or early fifties, that I too could be like them, that a little kid mm. from the wrong side of the tracks who you know family went. You know, pretty much for hand-to-mouth, carpenter's salary. I mean, I think my dad made like $18,000 a year, had, you know, nine mouths to feed. And he, they instilled in me that if you want it bad enough, you can have it too. And one of the things that really pisses me off today is this notion that you're stuck where you're, you know, there are countries... And I deal in these countries where you're stuck in a caste system of where you were born or your family, Mm -hmm. okay? And we may have one percenters and three percenters and ten percenters, but they're not always the same people. They fall out of that zone, and people rise into that zone. And that's the mobility, the upward mobility that we have in this country that we, you know, and I know, and we all should know that, but it is... It is not talked about in the media and these guys caddying for these very wealthy men and women showed me that i could have a better life too so so in terms of you know my parents my upbringing the experiences i had before leaving you know well before starting out on my own because i would i came back and caddied until i was like 21 yeah. you know I, I love making loops uh, with these guys mainly because I wanted to be around successful guys and they, get, they made me feel good. You know, I'm sure they weren't all, uh, you know, spiritually um, whole, ultimately sound men and women. I never, you know, judged that about them, but.
9: We're all complicated people.
11: Yes, great way to put it. You're, you're, that's right. All I know is they opened their hearts to us as caddies, and sometimes I think they look down, they didn't, didn't look down upon us, they looked on us like, these are these are the kids of our future, and if you just give them a break, or, or, a normal break, it could take off.
9: When we interviewed racing legend Mario Andretti, he told us something very similar about upward mobility in America versus other countries. He said that he never could have been a race car driver where he was born. Europe. It was only for the most elite of families there. Not so in America. And as for Tony, caddying even got him a full ride for college through the largest privately funded college scholarship program in the country and one that's exclusively for caddies called the Evans Scholarship. 800 economically disadvantaged caddies receive that scholarship every year. And my favorite part, it's that the former scholarship recipients then freely donate back to the Evans Scholarship, fueling the very next generation of scholars. In just one recent year, former Evans Scholars donated $11 million back to the program, and Tony Saliba has given millions. Tony is still high on the Evans Scholarship, whose fraternities consistently have the highest GPA on campus, but he's grown much more skeptical about college in general and the low value they're providing relative to their cost.
11: Harvard's out there begging for money because, God forbid, if you don't give, give something, we'll be down to our last $37 billion. What will we do, yeah. you know? I mean, donors
9: fall for it, and that's the tragedy. These endowments
11: are insane; they're insane. Yeah. But I, I put the market at f- five years to fifteen years. It's cracks, yeah. cracks will begin to occur. Yeah. You know the MOOC program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, you can get the stuff for free online,
9: yeah. but you can't get a certification. Yeah. Why? Because I'm sorry, it's bullshit. You can even get 17 online courses from Hillsdale College and learn much more on the subjects than at any other college, and for a cost of a big fat zero. And to close out my conversation with Tony Saliba, I just had to ask him about his involvement with Mark Wahlberg and Kurt Warner in launching the Elite Football League of India, a professional American-style football league in India.
11: And the whole purpose of doing this was to create content to be packaged and put on satellite for just a massively growing population that has lots of bandwidth for entertainment content. So all the games are played in a two or three week period, filmed in a professional sense by former NFL uh, producers and edited. There's nobody in the stands except for one little strip of <laughs> fans and cheerleaders to give you that feel, and the whole season put stadium
9: in, costs. Right,
11: <laughs> we don't put it in a can, and package it to uh, one of the ten sports, or or uh, Rupert Murdoch, rock and roll.
9: Do you feel like if it becomes so popular, you might actually get stadiums and fans? And that's the next stage. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs>
0: This is Our American Stories, and it's Tony Saliba that we've just been hearing from. And what an experience that caddying experience turned out to be. It changed his life. Now he's giving back, changing countless other young caddies' lives. Only in America, folks. This is Our American Stories, our American Dreamer series.